The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court. Unless there is any, any more questions, we have to find an argument in this case. Right? All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to give their attention. Welcome to Divided Argument, an unscheduled, unpredictable Supreme Court podcast. I'm Dan Epps. And I'm Will Bode. Okay, so this is our second episode recorded after a long hiatus. We did one catching people up on what's been going on in the Texas abortion cases, whole women's health and uh, U.S. versus Texas. Uh, And now in this episode, we're going to try to catch you up on some other stuff that's been happening at the court that isn't about uh, abortion. Why did we take so long off? Maybe it was because we were chastened by listener feedback. What happened? Boy, Dan, we've said a lot of uh, spicy and controversial things in this podcast, but I would not have predicted that the most controversial, most yeah, scolded thing we would say was in front of a live studio audience where neither you nor I could think of any important or famous Supreme Court justices from the state of Kentucky, a very fine state. Yeah, it turns out there are a lot, and some pretty pretty well-known ones, which I should have known because I'm actually in, <laughs> believe it or not, at that time I was in the middle of listening to an audiobook, really good audiobook, separate, which is about Plessy versus Ferguson. And the part I was in was about Justice John Marshall Harlan's childhood in Kentucky and in Kentucky politics. But like, you know, podcasting live is hard, right? You don't always have everything in your head. People screw things up. So I should have known that one. We've gotten a lot of flack about not knowing Brandeis from various people, most distinguished of which is Canon Shamagam, impressive Supreme Court litigator, give us Give us a little bit of a hard time. He's from Kansas, but maybe you know Kentucky is you know in the same general part of the world. He feels some loyalty, and many people said, "Oh gosh, how did you not know this?" There's uh, the Louisville School of, School of Law is the Brandeis School of Law, to which I respond, "Brandeis University is in Massachusetts. Come on, right?" <laughs> true, true. I think the the question of where a justice is from is actually often a little a little complicated. Yeah, I mean, with, was, with major with, historical figures, people claim them, right? Like right. different different places claim them. So Abe Lincoln, you know, it's like many people associated with Illinois, the land of Lincoln, but he was also born and then raised in Kentucky and Indiana. And so, and now I forgot, I think it's Kentucky that claims him as Lincoln's birthplace and Indiana says, well, we're Lincoln's boyhood home or maybe it's the other <laughs> way around. Well, that's like the license plates for North Carolina and Ohio, I think it is, where it's like they're both claim the Wright brothers. I think I think it's Ohio is birthplace of aviation and North Carolina is first in flight where the actual where Kitty Hawk is. So I don't know. So my colleague Daniel Hemmel had a comment. He was one of about the Kentucky? About about Brandeis and Kentucky. Uh, okay. I didn't yeah. I missed this and one. he said on Twitter, if one were to rate states by quality adjusted Supreme Court justices per capita, I think Kentucky might actually be the winner. So that's kind of so an advanced is, sabermetric statistic. I wasn't yeah. heretofore. Uh, that is, not those only, are some pretty good, pretty good ones. Yeah. And yeah. there's some now, others, I was, uh, right, that I've, I'm forgetting. I've already forgotten. Well, I was thinking about Massachusetts, which has Joseph Story and Justice Benjamin Holmes. Curtis, Stephen Breyer. <laughs> well, does he count? Like he he was a First Circuit judge in Boston. I don't know if was he. I don't know if he's like born in Massachusetts. I don't know where uh, he's from. Where is he from? I should know this. I don't know where he was born. Um, I think he was born in California. Maybe is that plausible? The Supreme Court website lists the justices by what state they were appointed from. So uh, like where they were. So they list him as Massachusetts. Do they list Under that theory? Kagan as DC. Let's see. They list her as Massachusetts. Okay. My guess is she was still domiciled in Massachusetts, right. even though she was resident of DC because she was serving as SG and at the time maybe there was she thought right. she might return to to Harvard. Right. But they put Brandeis as Massachusetts also under that theory. Okay. So not only did we make the mistake, the Supreme Court's website makes the mistake. I didn't know that. Okay. So <laughs> yeah. so critics, take that. Yeah. You can make a strong claim for Indiana or Colorado. Maybe, yeah, it's an interesting question. Look, even Homer nods, and we're not Homer. We're a lot worse than than that, even among the sort of lowly fields in which we which we roam. So it's going to happen again. Be charitable, just and recognize that if we're unscheduled and unpredictable, if you're if you're not nice to us, we got other things we could do. So 
Anything else? One other piece of a fun piece of email we got was from Devin Weinberg, who uh, passed along. <laughs> this is silly. A clip from the discussion with Justice Sotomayor when she failed to pick up on a Ghostbusters reference. Repeatedly asked whom she might call were there something strange in her neighborhood, and further, if that something were spectral, Sotomayor was stumped. Should uh-huh. that be disqualifying? <laughs> the Supreme Court Justice? I don't know. I, uh, I'm i writing a new article, and I put in it a reference to Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote, and I gave it to a, a student research assistant, and the student commented on that part. I do not know what this means. Perhaps I'm too young. Oh, that's totally uh-huh. unacceptable. The the conversation no, was with was with Stephen Colbert, by the way. I mean, so yeah. who was, you know, she should have been prepared for some jokes. You got to bring yeah. your, your joke a game. Wiley Coyote thing is totally indefensible because all of the classic Looney Tunes are on HBO Max. You subscribe? Subscribe to that? Uh, no, you should because I, I the kid they're great for kids. I've been watching them with my kids. They love them. Yeah. Maybe uh, I will. They're Maybe I will. 80, 80 years old, some of them, and not long older, and they still hold up. No, but I think the fault is mine. So that you know, the iron rule of professors making pop culture references is you are always even more uncool and out of date than you think you are. So I used to try to make West Wing references when I taught con law. Nothing. Yeah. One thing I'm pleased about is I do some law and order references in my crim pro classes. Like I play the music and stuff. And that was I was gonna have to phase that out. But now the main law and order show, the only one that's any good, is is coming back. Did you, did you hear about this? I heard about that. Yeah, that is big. I don't like the other shows. I don't think they work, but the main one is great. And your students I are still like not going to watch it, Dan. Hmm? Your students are still not going to watch it, Dan. No, but they're, they're going to be aware of it. It's going to be out there in the culture. That's all I don't, need. Don't hold your breath. I still get laughs with the music and stuff, so I don't need to hold my breath. What else? Anything else from the mailbox that we should talk about? Nothing urgent, I think. Okay. Got a lot. A lot of requests that we'll deal with over the course of uh, the next season, I think. But yeah. All right. So let's actually catch up on what the court has uh, been doing. So we don't have any merits opinions yet, but we do have two per curiam summary reversals off of the shadow docket, uh, both decided in mid October and both involving qualified immunity and uh, lawsuits against against police officers, and both in favor of the officers. Yeah, this is, a, this is a throwback, right? So one of the, you know, the court has these summer reversals where it takes a cert petition and it basically says, you know, it's so clear that the lower court aired here that we can just skip the grant argument briefing stage and just write the opinion. Two of its favorite topics for summer reversals are grants of habeas corpus under EDPA and qualified immunity failure to issue qualified immunity to police officers for and you little... have criticized them right you have criticized them and not particularly recently like years ago for choosing not having a good explanation for why they choose these kinds of cases to to summarily reverse and not other kinds of cases right yes yes one of the one of the original concerns i had when i first started writing about the shadow docket was you know i understand why the court picks out the edpa cases because there's a federal statute you know making it harder to view these cases that it seemed like the lower courts were nullifying. It's harder to justify what was going on in qualified immunity where there is no federal statute. The court just sort of invented one, but you know, the court doesn't care what I think they, that's increasingly clear. Yeah. So we've got two city of Taliqua versus Rollis. In this case, officers get a, the police get a call saying from a woman saying my ex-husband is refusing to leave my home. They go there. They find him in the garage. He approaches them wielding a hammer and uh, they shoot and kill him. And 10th Circuit had said excessive force suit against the officers could go forward. Supreme Court reverses and says officers plainly did not violate any clearly established law. Per curiam, no dissents. 10th Circuit, you know, is not kind of like a crazy, you know, out there lefty appellate court. What do you think is going on here? I mean, I think the court, I don't know that anything special is going on here. Like when the, when there's a state on top qualified immunity petition, that is when the, you know, the officers say we were denied qualified immunity and go to the Supreme court that always gets a close look. There's like a special, you know, red light in the court that warns them that somewhere an officer might have to be held personal liable. 
I think that's still true. Yeah. It's surprising. It's, you know, suggest the court, you know, everyone out there in the world, particularly in the last year or so, has been talking about qualified immunity, what how bad it is, you know, how it needs to be reformed, you know, even some, you know, conversations in Congress that look like they might go somewhere but but obviously haven't. The Supreme Court is not paying attention. They don't care. Right? Yeah, they're just going to do what they're going to do. Yeah, I, I mean, I uh I was talking about qualified immunity before it was cool, but I do think there has been a little bit of wishful thinking. So the, you know, some justices, Justice Sotomayor and Justice Thomas have said that the qualified immunity doctrine has gone wrong. The court did have a case last term where it summarily reversed the deny the grant of qualified immunity in a Texas uh, prison case that it hadn't done in a long time, and some people tried to read into that. You know, the court is sending a sign that you know it's trying to walk back qualified immunity. Nope. I've had some lower court judges tell me that that that's what they think is going on, and then that you know their courts have gotten a little bit more careful about qualified immunity because they think that's what the Supreme Court wants. And so and now the court is saying, no, actually, <laughs> go back to doing it the old way. Well, I don't. I think it's a mistake to read too much into this either way. So I'll say, like, this qualified immunity sumrav looks a lot like the other qualified immunity sumravs. It doesn't go out of its way to make the standard any harder. It just is a normal qualified immunity sumrav as you would have expected five years ago. So yeah, I don't think anything's changed dramatically. Yeah, but no, no dissent from Justice Sotomayor saying like, why are we doing this or like, why are we picking these cases? Everybody either joins or at least doesn't say that they don't join. So. Uh, another one like that, similar, decided the same day, per curiam, no dissents, Rivas Viegas versus Cortez Luna. And in this case, sort of similar setup in that a, a woman uh, calls and says, my boyfriend is kind of like acting aggressive, he's going to hurt us, and, my, and me and my two daughters are kind of barricaded ourselves uh, in our room. And uh, police show up, they end up, uh, they don't, luckily they don't shoot anybody, but they show up and they arrest the boyfriend and he sues and says, the officer kind of impermissibly placed his knee on on my back during the arrest. This was excessive force. Ninth Circuit says no qualified immunity. The Supreme Court uh, reverses, says there's no prior case that gave the officer fair notice that his conduct was unlawful. Yeah, again, I think very similar. The Ninth Circuit, so maybe even less surprising. And here there was a dissent by Ninth Circuit Judge Collins. And that's often a posture. You know, the, the Ninth Circuit denies qualified immunity, a conservative judge dissents. That's a posture that often gets the court a close look. There's one little legal issue here that, that got a little bit of attention that may be worth just mentioning, which is the Ninth Circuit partly relied upon its own Ninth Circuit precedent to say it was clearly established law, which is something that you cannot do under the equivalent inquiry in EDPA and habeas because the statute expressly says it's got to be precedent clearly established by the Supreme Court. And the court adds a little like, well, even assuming that controlling yeah. circuit precedent counts, which is something they've done before back in yeah, the this is, five years they've ago. done this like a dozen I feel like a dozen times at this point. I keep I I I keep yeah. forgetting that this hasn't actually been resolved yet. Yeah. So there is, it just reminded people, uh, I think some people saw this for the first time, but it reminded people that it's actually an open question. Well, that's not true. The court claims it's an open question whether or not circuit precedent counts for, for clearly established law. And obviously, some members of them think it doesn't. Yeah. Um, it's that, it's kind of crazy that that were the rule that, that only Supreme Court precedent can clearly establish a right. Because if you think about it, how, you know, fair notice works in other contexts, like with criminal law, if you violate, violate a criminal statute, I'm in Missouri. I violate a criminal statute. There's Eighth Circuit precedent saying it doesn't cover your conduct. There's a circuit split. Yeah. Uh, ultimately goes to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court says Eighth Circuit is wrong. We agree with the Seventh Circuit in the case that upheld Bode's yeah. conviction. And now Epps, uh, his conviction is we're going to overturn the Eighth Circuit. That's fine, right? That, that I would not have be able to complain. I didn't have fair notice, right. even although, though I was relying yeah. on the Eighth Circuit precedent. Although the Supreme Court has already said the opposite is true in the qualified immunity case. There are several cases where, you know, you sue somebody for unconstitutional action. The Eleventh Circuit says that their circuit court upheld upholds it, but other circuits would have said it was unconstitutional. You go up to the Supreme Court and they say, you know, yes, this was unconstitutional, but since some other courts thought it was okay, qualified immunity. And yeah, the, the but, the, is, but that's even crazier, right? That's the opposite. Like in the criminal yeah. context, I would be I would get convicted, even though there was an Eighth Circuit decision that yeah. said this thing isn't covered. And yeah. so that still counts for criminal purposes. That counts as like due process, fair notice. And yeah. yet, 
that's nuts, right? Even if you, I know you don't like qualified immunity, but even if you do, doesn't that seem crazy? Well, I mean, this is part of it. One of my concerns about qualified immunity is that it's so different from the kinds of fair notice requirements we apply other places. So it seems weird to me that we would hold uh, government officials who are supposed to be trained in the law to a lower standard than criminal defendants. Uh, but we do. And so here's, so on the, here's what I'll say. On the one hand, Camretta versus Green, a case from, uh, I don't know, almost 10 years ago now, seems to say that circuit court precedent can count for qualified immunity purposes. It's a really weird posture where the government official loses on the constitutional issue in the Ninth Circuit, but wins on the qualified immunity. Uh, so you know, the, the Ninth Circuit says, you acted unconstitutionally, but don't worry, you don't have to pay. And then he tries to seek review, even though he won, because he wants the constitutional holding overturned. And the court says that he can, that he has standing, because of the threat that the Ninth Circuit opinion poses to him in clearly establishing the law. So the premise of that opinion is that a, a circuit court opinion can create enough of a of a legal liability for you that you have standing to get it overturned. So it, it must be that the circuit but court it, opinion it counts in a way law. that's like favorable to defendants, but maybe not. not yeah, well, it's favorable to plaintiffs. Yeah, I, I guess this is on the other hand, and here's where I see where the court is coming from. It's a little weird. So suppose the Ninth Circuit develops some weird doctrine, you know, like over the course of thirty years about some constitutional right, and the Supreme Court just has never paid attention to it. And so lots of people get held liable for violating clearly established law in the Ninth Circuit. And then eventually it goes up to the Supreme Court, which says, no, 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 actually, like the Ninth Circuit's wrong. This is not a thing. It's a little weird to say that during that 30-year period, you violated clearly established law when it turned out there was no, you know, <laughs> it was wrongly clearly established. I mean, you could in theory have that. You could have law that's clearly established but wrong. But I understand why the court's reluctant to sort of acknowledge that category because it sounds strange. Yeah, but I mean that happened that happens all the time, right? There people win tort suits, you know, against other people and down the road some like a state Supreme Court will say actually that was they got the wrong view of the common law, but like that's just the way law works, right? Like yeah, and sometimes in, a, in the criminal context, sometimes you can get retrospective relief in that situation, but like not always. It sort of depends. Yeah, I mean it does all but qualified immunity feels a little different because the idea is like it's not like a normal tort suit. We only impose liability on you when it's supposed to be so obvious. The court says that only the plainly incompetent or those who knowingly violate the law will get yeah, it wrong. But if, if, so, if, let's say, the Ninth Circuit has said, like, you may not do X, Y, and Z when A, B, and C are true, and you officer does the, exactly that, I mean, why doesn't that qualify? Well, the point is you're not plainly incompetent if actually, you know, you were right. You were allowed to do this. It was the Ninth Circuit that was, that was incompetent. A different way to put yeah, it, is- it just seems like we sh- I guess I would prefer that like police officers follow appellate precedent and like sure they can litigate it down the road if they need to and try to get it revisited but I mean I, I, I'm not like the I'm rest like of that. us have to do that right the rest of us have to can't just be like okay well you know Supreme Court hasn't like conclusively ruled on this like specific subsection of the statute therefore I can yeah. violate it with impunity yeah no I, I mean the rest of us should be so lucky as to have qualified immunity. I'll just like the premise of the court's behavior here, including all the summer apps, is that like the courts of appeals clearly cannot be trusted uh, and are denying qualified immunity too often. That's I mean that's that's the court thinks. Yeah. I don't agree, but that's the court thinks. And so if they think that, you can imagine why they'd be reluctant to let the circuits establish their own clearly established law. Yeah, it's just weird to think that because I mean it's not like. The circuit courts are not staffed for the most part. I mean, there's some there's Biden appointees, but they're not staffed with like mostly kind of really aggressive plaintiffs lawyers. I mean, like they're you know there's a lot of former prosecutors uh, on yeah. the bench, and so why would it be the case that you know the circuit courts are like you know gleefully well, subjecting officers to suit? I think the truth is that the Supreme Court likes judicial supremacy when it's them doing it. <laughs> when other judges do it, it seems wrong to them. <laughs> It's just human, I guess. Yeah. Like, I want to decide everything. Yeah. Yeah. We really need a new label. It's like, it's just Supreme Court supremacy. We're the only ones who get to do it. Yeah. And so, you know, what's better than qualified immunity? Absolute judicial immunity, which they've also (laughs) given themselves and and their friends uh, on the bench. So, yeah, it's good work if you can get it to be a Supreme Court justice, get to decide everything. Don't necessarily have to let anybody else decide anything. But, uh, we're still doing business as usual. We're still doing summary reversals in sort of seemingly inconsequential qualified immunity cases that has, seem to have no no bigger implications for other cases. Like they're not establishing any important legal principle here. They're just saying 
we think it's really important that you not deny qualified immunity to this defendant, even though this defendant, this police officer is is surely not going to have to pay the judgment himself anyways, because yeah, they're always indemnified. Don't let anybody ever tell you the Supreme Court does not engage in error correction. Yep. So they do. At the end of October, we got a uh, some cert grants in a set of uh, related cases about uh, involving the EPA and the EPA's efforts to limit carbon emissions. And here we have a little bit of a complicated procedural posture, where, which is that the Obama administration had come up with this uh, clean power plan. And the Supreme Court, sort of towards the very end of the Obama administration, stayed its operation on a five to four ruling. This was back when this is before Justice Scalia's death, right? Am I remembering that correctly? It's the last vote he cast before his death, I believe. Okay. So this was the kind of um, old school lineup where you five to four, five uh, conservatives, including Justices uh, Kennedy, Justice Scalia, and then the four liberals, including Justice Ginsburg. So five to four decision, uh, staying this clean power plan. Was it, injo- it was an injunction? Was it a stay? Or I think it was an... In- was injunction. It was there was something unprecedented. What? Right. It, it, it was like an yeah, unprecedented was, thing. The court had like not time. done before. Yeah, at the right. time. It, it's stopping and, a law before it. But yeah, exactly. Yeah, before the DC Circuit had even weighed in. Yeah. Right. Now we do this all the time. Yeah, and ultimately, you know, the Trump administration comes into power, and that they kind of put the brakes on everything. They ended up rescinding the Obama rule, putting in place their own set of rules, the affordable clean energy rule. And and now we're having whiplash. The, Obama, the uh, Biden administration is in place. But what happened is the DC circuit, which is one of the more democratic-friendly circuits because of a number of appointments President Obama was able to make, held that the Trump administration's rescission of the Obama-era clean power plan was uh, unlawful violated administrative law principles. And so now that's was various cases were petitioned from that ruling. And now we're up at the uh, Supreme Court to consider that and and ultimately to consider the EPA's authority, exactly how much authority they have to regulate uh, carbon emissions. And in particular, whether they can tell like a coal plant, basically say, you know, you, you know, we need to start moving towards alternate sources of energy generation in order to reduce emissions. Yeah. So can I just say this dynamic reminds me a little bit of like the back and forth over the DACA and DAPA programs, Mm -hmm. the immigration relief, where it's like Obama administration does something controversial legal challenges, you know, maybe the Supreme court thinks it's unlawful, (laughs) borderline unlawful, doesn't fully issue an opinion. Then the Trump administration tries to undo it, but it turns out maybe that's also unlawful. That's you end up in this weird <laughs> yeah. catch twenty two yeah. where it's like, yeah, but <laughs> everybody's unlawful. It really makes you, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah and I don't know. What, like, I, I think that this is unfortunately maybe like our future, which is that the more we have kind of really significant things, you know, policies being enacted through kind of administrative rules. And that seems increasingly likely in a world where Congress is just plagued by interminable gridlock, the more we're going to see this whiplash as there's changes in administration, right? And a new administration puts the brakes on and tries something different. And then, but everything, both enacting a rule and like taking a rule, changing a rule, they all have to follow administrative law principles. And you can say that, you know, you didn't consider the right things or, or whatever. So I I don't know. I don't, I don't have a solution to all this, but. I do I wonder if it's going to be an idiosyncratic Obama Trump effect. If both the the late Obama administration just started, you know, doing some carefully lawyered, plausibly justifiable, but like big deal things, aggressive, that, yeah, that were aggressive, and then the Trump administration was maybe less carefully lawyered a lot of the time, especially on the agency side, and so you know, even if there might have been ways to undo it, they may not have been investing quite as much in in you know undoing it the right way. And so it, it might just be an artifact of that, yeah. that particular, we'll see. And so it may, yeah, maybe that, maybe that the Biden administration will do things that are less aggressive. Maybe that whatever successor Republican administration will have better lawyering. I mean, it could be, but it, I mean, I think more generally, I do think that we're going to see lots of, it just seems like it's inevitable that we're going to see lots more efforts at 
administrative yeah. policymaking in a world where Congress just doesn't seem to be able to do much. Yes, I was wondering this, and maybe this is another thing the readers will yell at me for forgetting an obvious example. But like, what's the last major executive policy you can think of that didn't like immediately get enjoined <laughs> by one side or the other in court? When you say policy, like uh, clean power, like plan, something that was issued or, with like rule, like as a rule, I, I because know, there's all sorts of things that you could des- describe as like a policy that are not like, like formally what? rules. I don't know, like the eviction moratorium. I mean, any of these things that are yeah. just like the White House just did X. It's a big deal, and we all understand that. That what it's about just what about the, the vaccine mandate for federal employees and contractors? It, I don't think they've been Hmm? Have they issued? It? Oh, the oh one have for they contractors? not actually issued it. Maybe for contractors, it has. The one for for employer large employers is still not out, and oh, okay. it'll be enjoined so the day will, it's out. That will get enjoined, right? No, maybe it is like Operation Warp Speed or something, like just getting the vaccines done or something. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, but it is it is a problem. Is that you know we're increasingly polarized. We're increasingly polarized about everything. Litigation is, you know. It, it, become extremely partisan you know you've got state ags on both sides of issues depending on whether they're red states or blue states i don't know none of this it, is it great. Does, yeah it doesn't help that congress doesn't pass major legislation anymore so every time there's a new problem the white house has to just try to shoehorn you know old statutes into it i mean yeah congress could pass a statute dealing with climate change they should um, but this is sort of related to a, a thing that, that I say in, in an op-ed about just noting this, this grant, this set of grants that hopefully will be out by the time this episode is out, which is that like, maybe like our structure our kind of constitutional structure, at least as we presently understand it, is just like really not very well suited to kind of like crises like this, like things that require kind of bold, decisive and coordinated action, like, like the pandemic, like climate change. If our whole constitutional system seems to be really kind of biased in favor of inaction, like it, it's hard to do stuff. Like it's it's easy to not do stuff and it's hard to do stuff. Like power is distributed, it's divided between the federal and state government. You need to, to do stuff. You need both houses of Congress. You need the president not to veto. You need things to get through the courts. You know, I wonder whether there's some areas where that's just really not a great system for getting done the kinds of things that need to get done. What would be a better system? Like, I don't know. I mean, I think that there are, I mean, a parliamentary system maybe that doesn't, I mean, so our system basically seems to be designed to have at least like two years of gridlock for every four year presidential term as president because of the staggered elections and because historical tendency for there to be a change, uh, Congress to change hands, or at least one, one, one house of Congress to change hands in the off year elections, you do end up with a lot of gridlock. And there's some comparativists that have written about Latin America, where which have sort of similar, you know, where countries that have had similar presidential systems, the argument is they're more likely to suffer from coups because you know the public gets sort of dissatisfied with the, with the gridlock and they kind of want a strong man to come in and and fix things. And parliamentary systems work a little differently. I mean, you as long as you have kind of a, a mandate to govern, you get to govern, and then when you lose the mandate, you know, right, you call an election what, and would. Federalism also be a solution. Like if we just if we were more consistent about just saying, yeah, the national government gridlocked, but the states, you know, California, Massachusetts, New York, you can really just you can govern yourself. yourself and uh, it's a solution to some things. I think it's not a solution to the kinds of problems I'm I'm flagging, which are ones where we need kind of coordinated action. I mean, like having a bunch of fifty different solutions to the pandemic, I think, is not ideal. Right in a world where we 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 have open borders between states, right? right? Or maybe that maybe that was the problem. Maybe we should have let the states close their borders. <laughs> it, it, maybe uh, New York. F- f- maybe we should maybe there. we should all secede and just have fifty different countries. I mean, but in a world where we you know we have a national economy, we have freedom of travel. I mean, it's just it's hard to just say like okay, Texas and Alabama, you can go nuts and and let the pandemic run wild, and you know Massachusetts don't. I mean, it's. It's it's a sec it's it's very much a second best. And like climate change, like yeah, sure, we can have fifty different solutions, but that doesn't actually address the problem if the problem is carbon emissions, which if you know, the carbon emissions that, you know, Texas and West Virginia and places like that emit, 
you know, have consequences, not just for the rest of the country, but for the rest of the world. Climate change and the pandemic seems sort of like the opposite, though. Like the, the speed, the speed required to address the pandemic was incredibly fast. And with climate change, part of the problem is, la- I mean, you know, better to address it 10 years ago than now, but part yeah. of the bigger problem is consistency. Like you but just I think need that to have just a makes it a harder problem. I guess I sort of looked at the, looked at the way we handled the pandemic, and I thought it was kind of like a a microcosm of, of why it's basically impossible within the U.S. system to come up with kind of meaningful solutions to climate change. Yeah. Right? It's just, it's first it's of all, we're so system. polarized. Any, anything that becomes, takes on partisan valence. State A does X. You know, other state wants to do opposite of X. It just seems, made me kind of very pessimistic. More so but than, you, I mean, I already was kind of pessimistic, but more so. You think a parliamentary system could get through like a carbon tax or- I do. I mean, I think there would be in our country, in our politics. I think. Well, I mean, it's hard to you know say like our country, but with a totally different system of government. But I do. I mean, you'd you'd still you know the question would be would a future administration, future government you know repeal it, and that would be easier as well. I mean, that's you know it's easier to do stuff, but also easier to kind of undo stuff uh, in a parliamentary system. I think, but but I do think that like you know there are other countries that maybe don't fragment power quite as much as we do that seem to be able to kind of act a little bit more unilaterally. I mean, those countries are also maybe not as polarized to the crazy extent as we are. Right. Right. Or at least don't That's have, a, have you know. yeah. Part of this, like, which is the cause and which is the effect, you know, yeah. like if we didn't, if we didn't have all the people we have here. All right. So <laughs> I mean, should, should we talk about the, the law at issue in this case though? Yeah, I guess we should, or we're supposed to talk about law sometimes. Up to you. No, go for it. So the Supreme Court finally grants cert in this, and the question, right, is whether or not the Clean Air Act, uh, I think 42 U.S.C. Section 7411D, but maybe there's some other section I'm missing, basically whether or not that provision, which is kind of a general, like, you can establish standards for air pollutants, whether that allows the EPA to regulate carbon, right? Yes. Well, I think whether it allows them to regulate it in this way, I think maybe is. Okay. Is is slightly more more accurate. Let me pull up. Like the, not just as a direct emission, but in terms of the broader kind of decarbonization requirements. So specifically, this is one provision of the Clean Air Act. And the question is, does this specific provision allow the EPA to issue rules that require pretty significant things like that are not just like this power plant needs to kind of limit its emissions, like you know, this way by like imposing, you know, like better filters. I don't even know. I don't know anything about it, but rules that are like, no, you need to like have way fewer coal plants, more natural gas, more, you know, like that kind of like big picture rules. Yeah. Okay. So like, not like, I don't think it's whether you can like ever regulate it in any way. It's like, can you use this provision as kind of a hook for kind of broader, this broader set of regulations? Okay. And now it seemed to me like, like this already has gotten a lot of tension. I think for there's sort of three levels. So obviously, it's just an important policy question. You know, can we regulate? Can the EPA uh, have this kind of clean power plan? The questions also include the legal question about whether this, whether the the administration's position or the old administration's position violates the so-called major questions doctrine, which is, I guess, it's a statutory interpretation principle that when an agency has really broad authority, even though we normally defer to the agencies about things. If it's like really important, then suddenly we won't defer to the agency anymore. There are- or, or like the, we're gonna we're gonna assume that that Congress would have like really been clear with us. I mean, like no, no, we really want EPA to be able to do this big stuff, right? Right. When, when Congress that- says the EPA can do stuff that it thinks is necessary and appropriate. That doesn't mean stuff that's a really really big deal, unless unless like Congress explicitly like, say so. Outlaw hamburgers. Uh, yeah. Right. right or, that's or kind of thing. Outlawing like, regulating tobacco under the Food and Drug Administration was once yeah. an example of this. Yes, exactly. It's a real, real life example. And then there's also kicking around a question of whether the statute violates the non-delegation doctrine. That is, if you don't have a major questions approach to it, if you say, "Yep, when Congress says necessary and appropriate, that can be even the Clean Power Plan," then is that a sign that the statute is just a limitless uh, delegation? Yeah. So it's and like that, it, there's kind of like three layers. There's like, does the statute let them do this? Like, and then in the backdrop is, okay, but there's this, you know, is that, 
would Congress have allowed this? And so you use this major questions doctrine to sort of say, like, can we plausibly, you know, would would Congress have have done that? Like, that's kind of a, a guide to statutory interpretation. And then below that is the kind of deeper issue of like, if Congress had actually done that, would that be a constitutional problem under the the so called non delegation doctrine? Okay, so in terms of the am I right to think of the major questions doctrine as sort of like the constitutional avoidance applied to the non delegation doctrine? That is. If Congress said, boy, EPA, you just solved climate change, yeah. that would raise a serious non-delegation question. I don't think and that's so we'll quite right, because I think that, there, that you could believe in the major questions doctrine without believing in non-delegation. Like, you, you think, could think that Congress could say, no, no, we really want – like, first of all, we, Congress could certainly say we want the FDA to regulate tobacco, right? Congress could say that, no problem. And the problem, you know, the reason why you might say – no, you can't do that isn't because you think it would be unconstitutional for the FDA to regulate tobacco. It's because you think that that's the kind of thing that in the broader context, like, you know, Congress would have wouldn't have done that. They wouldn't have accidentally or kind of sub silentio done that. They they would have like given the way we, you know, the role of tobacco in the economy and all these other ways in which it's regulated, we wouldn't have just sort of let the FDA regulate it, right? But is the question sorry, is the question whether Congress could say the FDA can regulate tobacco, or is the question whether Congress could say the FDA can decide whether the FDA can regulate tobacco. Like, isn't the point that we at least want Congress to be forced to choose yes or no, rather than delegate to the FDA the question of whether to regulate tobacco? Yeah, maybe so. I'm just my 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 point is just that like, yeah, you could take the kind of you know Posner over Mule view that like, which is that you know non delegation doesn't matter; it's not a problem, right? And you could still say, but if you're going to delegate that broadly, you know, please really say so loudly. Right, I think so. Although, are there anybody who, in fact, takes that view? So the, I mean, I've seen the major questions doctrine invoked by like the conservative members of the court. I think Justice Kavanaugh invoked it in connection with the non-delegation doctrine recently in a separate opinion. Is there anybody? I don't, you know, is there like does Nick Bagley believe in the major questions doctrine despite not believing in the non-delegation doctrine? I guess Nick, if you're listening, you I can speak for him. I mean, so okay. maybe in practice that's what's going on. Although, you know, I just, I don't know if we've actually kind of put the rubber to the road on yeah, that. Okay. okay. Um, um, and, all right. And where are you at on that? Are, is that your view? I guess I'm more sympathetic to the non-delegation doctrine than I am to the major questions doctrine, I think. But And the non-delegation doctrine just being that, like, the legislature gets to legislate and the executive gets to do executive stuff, but the legislature can't tell the executive make things that look like legislative rules beyond a certain point. Right? Yeah, I mean, right. I guess that's the kind of dumbed every, down version. Everybody agrees that the legislature does the legislative stuff and the executive does the executive stuff. The question is whether some laws are so open-ended that they are de facto grants of legislative power, even though they purport not to be. You know, And if so, where do you draw the line? And I guess I'm, I'm currently most sympathetic to Justice Scalia's old position, which is, yes, there is a line, but it's probably impossible for the judiciary to draw it. So it's effectively non-justiciable. But I could be persuaded. It can't be the case that every time, you know, the executive branch issues some kind of rules, like now it's now it's the legislative branch, and then you have to go back to Congress, right? Because just even in in you know just ordinary exercise of the of the executive power, like you just have to you have to be able to issue rules and guidance and how you're how you're going to consider things and things like that, right? I think you can. I don't know that you have to. I think you could imagine a world where the executive can do stuff, but like once you get to issuing a rule, that that would go too far. I mean, and you can imagine that world. That would be very radical, and I don't think that's required. But yeah, I, th- I think it's a it's just a deep line drawing problem. And as I I've started looking at the history, because I'm going to probably have to write something about these various historical debates with the non-delegation doctrine. And you don't have to. No one's going to make you. Uh, well, I agreed to go to a conference where that's my assigned topic. So uh, with this, it's, you have to write a symposium paper. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Okay, it's always a mistake. Is it? Well, I don't know. I, I should run only, the if, you, only I if you were going to, if you only if you were going to write it anyways, you shouldn't you shouldn't agree to write something you don't want to write? You must well, want to write. write. Okay, well, well then that's fine. That's fine. I both do and don't. I, I want to be. <laughs> I want to be forced to write it. <laughs> okay. Well, tell me how you feel about it when you're actually writing it, and see whether you regret it or not. I will. So that is kind of lurking in the background. Uh, I think there were some initial kind of like commentary about like, oh gosh, the Supreme Court is going to wade into non-delegation. You know, I looked at the petitions. I think it's, they're not going to address that head on. I, I ran that by administrative law guru and listener to the show, uh, my colleague Ron Levin, and, and his view 
was the same that this was you know going to be resolved on kind of more administrative law grounds and not you're not going to kind of head on grapple with the non-delegation stuff but it could be kind of lurking there in the background yeah that seems right to me i i would not be surprised if there was a even a majority opinion that invoked the major questions doctrine and said it was connected to the uh, non-delegation doctrine but maybe a separate opinion or you know yeah. like a gorsuch opinion that sort of says like I would have rested this on the constitution or, or something like that, right? Like I think it's Kavanaugh opinion that says, you know, this is what the statute says, this would be a big thing to smuggle in the statute. We don't think that's right. You know, one of the reasons that we interpret the statutes in this skeptical fashion is the underlying concern about delegation of power, which we've remarked on in the past, you know, that kind of thing. So to say that, but not, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that seems that seems plausible. It also and it also seems like the the challengers and not the EPA, the challengers are going to win here, right? Like it just seems like, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion, but it just given the grant, given that some people, there's reason to say that the grant is a little premature. Like the, the Biden administration has not, you know, has already said like, you know, we're going to back off this Trump thing. We're going to issue our own rules, just put the brakes on, just, just hold up. And the court is like, no, let's go ahead and do it. That suggests to me that it's reasonably likely the court will almost, you know, overwhelmingly likely that the court will say, EPA, you know, let's just resolve this now. EPA, you can't do the kind of stuff you're trying to do here under the Clean Air Act. Yeah, I agree. This this kind of generation shifting where you're kind of ordering, you're saying like you have to move, you know, power generation from this, this kind of power source to this other kind of power source. Yeah, I agree. So I think a big deal for climate policy, of course, but probably not a big deal for administrative law in the end. I mean- Depending on what they say about major questions, right? Yeah. I mean, they could – you could imagine an opinion that kind of frames that in a way that that expands its reach or sort of suggests more things are major than – Yes. Than my, my, memory is that, my memory is that Judge Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit had had some interesting and thoughtful and maybe somewhat aggressive readings of the major questions doctrine. And so I, I guess I would not be surprised to see some of that now become Supreme Court doctrine. That could be – so you think like maybe he'll get the majority or maybe he'll he'll kind of be writing separately and pushing yeah. his views? Yeah. One other. Okay. All right. Anything else that's been happening at the court? One other thing. I think last time, oh so many weeks ago, we recorded, you know, we talked about the the justices, you know, kind of pushing back on criticism and criticism about the shadow docket. I think that's continued uh, since we last recorded. I don't remember. I don't remember who the most recent one was. I don't remember if it's Alito or or Barrett. I think it was Alito because I think we talked about Barrett. A sort of pushback on that since we last recorded. So it does. It you know it reinforces my impression that the justices are kind of aware that they're getting criticized. Yeah. Well, I think that's. I mean, I think the one funny thing in general is that the court's practices on the shadow docket have gotten a little more regular and thoughtful mm. in general. In the past five years, they write more opinions than they used to. They note more dissents than they used to. They sometimes make a little bit of explanation to ex- effort to explain what they're doing. Like just in a way they weren't nearly as self-conscious yeah. five, 10 years ago. But now, yeah, now we're yeah. also seeing the stage of pushback and, you know, yeah. we shouldn't call I it mean, the shadow docket and all that. In, in the, you know, kind of shadow docket order kind of refusing to halt the operation of of the Texas abortion law SB8, the day kind of the the night it had already gone into effect. I mean, the court issued kind of a very brief kind of it's not really an opinion, but kind of like textual order. I think that's a place where the court could have been a little bit more forthcoming. Had a procurum opinion uh, responding yeah. to the dissents, sort of say like, "Here's what's going on," or "Here's what we think." I think that could have been better, but uh, it could be. But I will say, even what they did is something that they would not have done ten years ago. Ten years ago, they even they would have just been, sort of said denied, and, and that's they would have just said denied. There would have been no sentences saying, you know, ex parte young, what these things were. Okay, so speaking of shadow dockety stuff, I think this falls within that jurisdiction. We've got we've got stuff, a little bit of other stuff on the orders list just to briefly talk about. So we had a couple of dissents from denial that are worth talking about in one kind of statement that maybe is worth worth talking about. So we're we doing Maine first? 
Oh yeah, forgot about that one. Yeah, we got to talk about that too. Uh, so yeah, tell us about that. So on October 29th, the Supreme Court had a request to enjoin Maine's new vaccine requirement for healthcare workers, which does not contain a religious, a, a, you know, provision for religious objectors. And the court decided not to enjoin it, let it uh, go into effect with a six-three opinion. Uh, so three justices dissented: Justice Gorsuch, Justice Thomas, and Justice Alito, on kind of the free exercise grounds that will be familiar to people who followed the court's sort of free exercise jurisprudence, especially in COVID cases. So, so and, not not arguing that the court that that a state can't have a vaccine mandate, but arguing that that not having a ex- religious exemption is a free right. exercise violation. If you make some other objections, yeah. so they make you know various medical objections. And there's always this question about what counts. But if you make various, given the kinds of exceptions they do make, that they also have to make an exception for religion. Um, yeah. But we don't have the other, you know, we have Gorsuch in dissent, but we don't have the other two Trump justices. You have Justice Barrett, who concurs, joined by Justice Kavanaugh. Yes, Very so short just, statement. Yes. And Justice Barrett's concurrence may be one of the most, I think, one of the most interesting things to come on the shadow docket in a while. Just Justice Barrett says, when we're asked to grant this kind of relief, one of the factors is likely to succeed in the merits. And that includes not just the merits merits, but the question of certworthiness. Because you're effectively asking us to like intervene under the theory that this is something we're going to, you know, you're later going to prevail, and so we should rule for you now. So we should ask about certworthiness. Which seems um, right, just at the outset. I think that seems That right. has to be right. I agree. Yeah. And she says, were the standard otherwise, then you could use the emergency docket to force the court to give a merits preview in cases that you'd be unlikely to take. So it seems right. And then she says, in my view, this discretionary consideration counsels against a grant of extraordinary relief in this case, which is the first to address the questions presented. So I think this is right, but it also exacerbates one of the things that people worry about the shadow docket. So anytime you're asking the court for one of these emergency injunctions, they're saying, you know, even if we think your legal rights are totally being violated, we could just decline to intervene for the same reason we could always just decline to grant cert, even when a case is wrong. And on the one hand, the court regularly declines to grant cert when things are wrong and says, oh, we're not a court of error correction, except then sometimes they do grant cert and they are a court of error correction when they feel like it. So this is making very clear that there's a when we feel like it uh, exception to all requests for emergency relief uh, on the shadow docket, which both seems right and troubling at the same time. Well, yeah, but it's not it's not a when we feel like it in terms of granting emergency relief. It's like when we conclude that this you have a you know like there's a standard. It's likelihood of success on the merits, and you're entitled to this relief if you're likely to get your petition granted, right? So it's right. not like like the discretion is about the likelihood of granting the petition, not like whether we give you the relief or not. If, yeah, if but, we're likely to grant the petition, argument you're entitled to relief. We're not likely right. to grant the petition, not a great right. argument. But it's the Supreme Court that decides whether whether they're likely to grant the petition. And that decision is itself very discretionary. That is, there are lots of circuit splits where the court says, eh, I just don't feel like granting it anyway. And vice versa, lots of like non-circuit splits where the court says, well, I want to grant. So yeah. It, and one of my favorite that's, things. I mean, that's just the way it works. If you, if you, I mean, I, there's reasons yeah. to not like that, but right. No, I, I think it's completely correct, but it's also, I'll just say, uh, I mean, I'll say this, that's the way it works. And I'm not sure the court has, has always taken full advantage of its discretion in this area, but I think it's doing so more often. So when justice Barrett was professor Barrett, she wrote a really interesting article about stare decisis and certiorari where she says, look, even if you think something like the justice Thomas position, that there are a bunch of cases that like, you have to overrule because they're clearly wrong as a Supreme Court justice. Even if you think that, you can just use cert to dodge them. You can just take a case where you'd say, wow, if I granted cert, I'd be required to do X. And I don't want to, <laughs> therefore I won't grant cert. So, you know, it's just examples, the classic examples of like legal tender. Is legal tender unconstitutional? It might be unconstitutional. You know, technically nobody wants to overturn it. And so if you're a hardcore originalist, you have an out. You can just say, like, I refuse to grant cert, so I won't have to think about it. And maybe that's actually a good argument for the discretion, you know, sort of say, like, this is why we shouldn't have, you know, mandatory appeal yeah. review, because then it forces the reconsideration, merits reconsideration of, of issues that, that would be disruptive yeah. to redecide. Look, there's a lot to be said for it. I think one thing that's very awkward, though, is that if you are a justice who likes to trumpet your lack of discretion a lot on the merits, like, like Justice Thomas, and say like, "Look, I'm just honored. I'm bound to do this. You know, I don't. I can't use my policy views." Then now it turns out you can. It turns out there's like you know, in a particular way, but there's a place where actually 
you do get to bring those views in. And so it complicates that narrative. Now, maybe that's yeah. maybe that's good. And maybe now we just get to ask justices about their policy views because we'll say, look, yeah, <laughs> you, you know. But the problem is that a subset can force the others to then decide the issue because it's four, only four needed to grant cert. It's true. It's true. So, and it's a little funny to think like if Justice Kavanaugh had joined the other side, if he'd said, well, I think this is cert worthy, then, I mean, this is sort of where the practice of the, of the uh, courtesy fifth comes from is if, if there are four justices who say we're ready to grant cert, then Justice Barrett, I take it, would say, okay, now that factor goes away because this is likely to be cert worthy, even though I don't want it to be. And then she'd have to have to grant it. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, is Does each justice make that calculation about likelihood of certiorari based on what the other justices think, or is it sort of a, their own view? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's supposed to be empirical, like what you think will actually happen. I guess all the likelihood of success on the merits, like each, I would imagine that you would expect each justice to make their own view of the legal merits. Not like, I think you're likely to succeed on the merits because I have five colleagues who are idiots, right? I'm not sure. Like if you have, if you have existing binding precedent that you want to overrule, I think you say you're likely to succeed on the merits, even though I hope we overturn the precedent because yeah. right now, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. It's also funny because it's they don't have to predict; they can talk to each other. So, <laughs> you know. Um, anyway, I think that's a that's a really interesting move. It's clearly an attempt to bring a little bit more like rationality to the shadow docket, but it's also going to bring some more discretion. So, what else? So then we have the orders list. We have a few things on the orders list. One, not really going to talk about Simmons versus United States which is a statement of Justice uh, Sotomayor basically saying that, hey, Sixth Circuit, you didn't construe this pro se filing liberally enough, but I also don't think this is important enough for the Supreme Court to get involved. It's my favorite genre of Sotomayor opinion, I have to say, are the like, yeah. the looking out for the little guy. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's great. It's a good one. It's basically a, a prisoner who missed his deadline for filing a habeas petition, but arguably because he didn't have access to federal legal materials in his prison. Seems like maybe the Sixth Circuit and he's filing pro se, seems like maybe the the Sixth Circuit should paid a little bit, you know, been a little bit more helpful to pro se filer, given that there's rules of liberal construction. So don't disagree with any of that. He's not going to get help. Maybe the Sixth Circuit will take the hint in, in this case or a future case. I don't know. But she has another one that's, I think it's a bit of a bigger deal, which is Kuntz versus United States, which is a dissent from denial joined by Justices Breyer and Kagan. And it's a capital case where the uh, capital prisoner is arguing that he can't be executed under Atkins versus Virginia because he has an intellectual disability. And what happened was the lower courts, lower federal courts, denied that claim, you know, using a kind of a definition of intellectual disability that has now recently been superseded by the American Association on Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities, which I guess is a very considered a very respected and authoritative source of what these things mean. The the lower courts have sort of taken a more bright line rule that if the intellectual disability doesn't manifest before age 18, doesn't qualify, that's apparently not the kind of clinical definition anymore. And now it's uh, it can manifest later. Here, Kuntz's impairments manifested at age 20, fully manifested at age 20. And the thing that's weird, though, is that the the SG's office, the now the Biden SG's office, had come into the court and said, we agree with the capital prisoner that the Eighth Circuit is going to want to reconsider this in light of this, and we yeah. think the petition should be granted, vacated, and remanded back to the Eighth Circuit for further consideration. Yeah. And the Supreme Court says, no, sorry, don't care, right? Yeah. They deny anyways. Yeah. Not totally unprecedented, I think, but, but pretty unusual to – not GVR in a case where the SG's office says, please do GVR. We agree. Yeah, right. So this it's always this funny area of things where the SG is sort of asking the court to give it a do-over for the lower courts. I think there have been some justices who've always been against that practice and said, no, we, you know, we owe it to the Eighth Circuit to either say they're right or wrong, not just say like the SG wants you to try again. But the court often does do it. You know, I could imagine, given the change in administration, that you also worry that the SG might be using the court a little bit. Like that the truth is they 
you know, I'll be happy to have this overturned for other reasons. And they're mm-hmm. kind of looking for an excuse. And it is always especially weird in a criminal case where, you know, the president can commute the death sentence tomorrow. If, if he's actually persuaded that there's a problem, yeah. he doesn't need the Eighth Circuit's permission to, to commute the death sentence. So it, it's a little weird. Yeah. Um, I mean, that it does seem like that's, you're kind of getting at the kind of behind the scenes dynamics that might have motivated the conservative justices to just say, sorry, we're not going along with this, that they, they kind of think this is, you know, for, I mean, a couple of things. I mean, one is, you know, some of them are just going to disagree with, with Atkins, the idea that the Eighth Amendment uh, restricts execution of intellectually disabled capital prisoners. They're just going to disagree with that on the merits. But yeah, I think that they, others might think that like, you know, this isn't kind of an appropriate what? GVR situation. I mean, there's sometimes where the SG's office comes in and says, you know, we've, we think this is an erroneous decision or something like that. And they've changed their position. The clearest case of a appropriate GVR is where like the law has changed. You know, you relied on the Supreme court decision and now we've overturned the Supreme court decision. So you need to do it over. And it is the other weird thing is that it's not that any like legal decision has changed. It's just that this document produced by this private organization that's that some people think is legally relevant to the question has changed. Yeah. And, you know, obviously there's a, a spectrum. Like if you relied on a law review article and then the author of the law review article has like since retracted the article, I don't think we would ever GVR and say like, you know, that's not Oren Kerr's position anymore. It's circuit. Did you really mean to, <laughs> to do that? But you know, if it's something that's like a, a statute or something you do, and then, you know, are the guidelines issued by this multinational organization, which category they fit in? I'm reminded in general, this is like a fight in the death penalty cases. Like Justice Stevens loved to rely on like the ABA guidance in deciding lots of like ineffective assistance. Yeah, ineffective claims. assistance. Yeah, right. But then other justices, including like several majority opinions, say like, "Oh no, don't do that." But then Justice Stevens would get a majority again, and he'd cite the ABA guidance. So I feel like, yeah, but it, it is kind of unusual question. to just say like, you know, in theory, this is this is like a federal you know, federal constitutional question, I think, like what the definition yeah. is and just yeah. say like, okay, instantly the result changes because this association, which, you know, frankly, I had not heard of before Has today. the age from 18 to 22. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. AAIDD. I'm sure it's yeah. very respected. I'm not questioning that, but it's just, that is a little unusual. And so I could, I can see, you know, why the court's doing that. Again, another situation though, where like, I know we n- normally don't get explanations, you know, would, would have been maybe not terrible for someone to just say, here's why we're doing this yeah. and yeah. like give guidance I mean, about like, you know, SG's office, like, you know, here's when we're going to be willing to go along with you, you know, but you don't get just kind of automatic kind of GVR. I agree. I agree. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this is a case where there wasn't a clear consensus on why not, like the mix of reasons we described could well have been held by different justices. And especially if you yeah. had some of the like political concerns, you might feel awkward about. But if that's what's really going on, office. like if it's like political, then they should yeah, say or, so. I mean, right. Or if it's like political mistrust, you say like the SG is here trying to like waste our time for something that the White House doesn't even want anyway. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I but I mean, in it, general, I yeah, these GVRs are weird because it's the executive branch saying like, oh, this other person should have won. It's just like, let them out of jail. Okay. Like do whatever you want. Like, you know, you have authority to do that. Right. Right. I mean, there is also a pause on federal executions right now too, right? So- yeah, and and also, I think this this issue could be litigated like on collateral review. So this will this is not the end of the story. Last one to talk about is a dissent from denial that's joined by Justice Sotomayor, but is not by Justice Sotomayor. It's actually by Justice Gorsuch. In this case, helpfully named ACLU versus United States. So the case could be a lot about a lot of things. ACLU has a lot of things that might, might want to object yeah. to that the U.S. does. Well, and then the next this line is, okay. Hmm? Oh, yeah. that This is interesting. Yeah, re, re, read, the, read the next line. Right. So read the caption. ACLU versus United States. On a petition for writ of certiorari to the United States Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court of Review. Not a frequent uh, appearer in the Supreme Court. Yeah. I, I don't, I'm not aware of whether the court has ever heard a petition from this court. Basically, the there's this special court system which is set up to issue warrants for electronic surveillance conducted for foreign intelligence. It's called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. And then there's the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court of Review, 
first one we call might call the Fisk, and then we have the Fisker that hears appeals. Uh, Fisker hears appeals from Fisk, and it's it's a it's a court made up of a group of selected district judges. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts has historically put more Republican appointed justices on the Democratic appointed justices. I think that's not a great system, and we have a few other Article Three judges on there, but. What does this court do? We don't really even know what they do. These courts do, right? Well, we know they they basically review warrant applications, yeah. right, for some sort of national security things. Yeah, but do they like write opinions? Like, what does it look like? I mean, it's all it's secret, right? That's the problem. And so, what the ACLU is saying is says that the First Amendment should give us, you know, a qualified right of to opinions containing significant legal analysis, even if you have to redact them, right? And in general, there is this, you know, this idea that there is sort of a First Amendment right of access to the public to judicial proceedings. So, like this stuff is not supposed to happen totally in secret, right? Right. And then even while you can have argument, some stuff has to be secret, but you have to sort of like the presumption is openness. So you can't just have things like categorically black boxed. You have to go through them and decide, you know, exactly what has to be secret and what doesn't, and and so on. Yeah. And what does the government say in response? So the government says, you can't even consider this. Like, Regardless of whether this is right or wrong, you don't even have the chance to – this court doesn't even have the power to hear this. Right. That there's no – I mean, this goes to the – you know, there's no certiorari jurisdiction because the FISC is not – the Fisker is not a court of appeals. It's not covered by the other various statutes. And then that leaves the All Writs Act, which is what the court uses to grant these various like emergency motions and injunctions and is broadly worded. But the court says, you know, even then – and give the court jurisdiction. So the the government's view is sort of ironic, given the government's uh, position in U.S. versus Texas. But the government's <laughs> view is this part of the government doesn't have to answer to any court authority and just have to you, know, you have no remedy and you just have to ignore them. Which is a little troubling. And I thought this was I thought this is a pretty good opinion by Justice Gorsuch. Last paragraph, he says, "Today the court declines to take up this matter. I would hear it." This case presents questions about the right of public access to Article Three judicial proceedings of grave national importance. Maybe even more fundamentally, this case involves a governmental challenge to the power of this court to review the work of Article Three judges in a subordinate court. If these matters are not worthy of our time, what is? Respectfully, I dissent. It's got a point, right? Like, yeah. And so, why is there no interest in doing this? Like, why? Like, why don't only two justices seem interested in this? Yeah, well, that's a good question, and. I mean, I don't know. know. I was hoping you knew. Yeah. Well, I wonder. I mean, I do. I think the awkwardness of the procedural vehicles is probably part of it. Even if you're not convinced that the United States, that the Supreme Court doesn't have jurisdiction, you know, that can be a so called vehicle problem. I think, like, well, I'm interested in the First Amendment issues, but. Could the ACLU now go to federal district court and file, like, an injunction and, you know, file, like, a a suit uh, seeking kind of this relief? I mean, no, I think this really is going to replay some of the U.S. versus Texas questions. I mean, they're different. You know, can you get a junction against judges? And I assume there's somebody in the ACLU who's going to respond to this by trying about four other procedural mechanisms to get yeah. them to the court to see if any of those work. Yeah. You know, but it could be, you know, it's a tough area of certiorari because it's not like there's a circuit split. Like, there can't really be a circuit split about this. So it's hard to know, like, is this something we have to weigh in on? And you know, the court is often hesitant to get involved in national security questions where it doesn't necessarily know what it's doing. Although it's yeah. not like the, the Fisk judges are any more expert, really, in national security. It, it's interesting that Justice Gorsuch seems eager to kind of address this First Amendment issue because this is the First Amendment right of public access does sort of have this flavor of maybe something that's like you might, I might have suspected that a Justice Gorsuch type might think is made up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, we don't know what I don't conclusively read him as like reaching the merits of that, but he does seem like he's kind of like gung ho about yeah. it. Yeah. Well, it it is. I mean, so in the in the lower courts, it's often a mixture of the First Amendment and kind of more common law principles. So I do think you could think that just as a matter of general sort of like the common law of judicial procedure, that the presumption of openness is important, and you know, presumably these these judges answer to the Supreme Court in some way lingering issue i've always liked which is that it's not clear that the chief justice should have the authority to pick people mm-hmm. so under the appointments clause you can offices can be vested in the president plus the senate the president alone the heads or the of the courts of law or the courts of law the chief justice and he's not, is not a, court. a court yeah he's not a court right 
So I think there's a pretty good argument that it should actually be the Supreme Court as a whole that has to yeah. pick. And the Supreme Court could choose to delegate it to the chief if they wanted to. But I don't oh, think yeah. that argument's never been conclusively resolved. Can um, we can we can we litigate that now? Can we Well, apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> can we sue the Chief Justice? I don't know. Can we sue somebody? Uh, you can do that. I'm still trying to get admitted to the bar. <laughs> Wait, you haven't did you send your stuff off? I got the certificate of good standing, but it's okay, still sitting right there. That's not really you're not so basically you're not trying. You're trying it's very hard dan it's not hard administrative help it's it's a form it's one form okay forms are hard <laughs> Can, you have to it, print it you need to fill it out <laughs> you don't have to, to stay you have administrative help someone can help you print this right okay if we have any paralegals out there who want to volunteer their services to will he's apparently just completely unable to do basic adult tasks all right i think that's it i, I this i don't know if i can go forward anymore after that revelation I think I'm just too too disgusted to to go forward. So might as well just end the episode there. Maybe by the end of season two. Maybe by the end of season two, I'll have to figure that. We'll see. And that's going to be a longer season than season one because we're starting. We started this in you know should have started yeah. in October, starting this in November. We're going to go presumably through July, unless the court just decides to give up around February or something, which I don't expect yeah. them to, but wouldn't mind. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Please remember to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If we get a critical mass of reviews uh, and ratings, that'll help encourage us to put out episodes slightly more frequently. So now's your chance to, to encourage us. Thanks to the Constitutional Law Institute for sponsoring our endeavors. Don't forget the various places on our website you can find transcripts, merchandise, and other things. Thanks for listening. 